All right. Uh, I'm ready. I'm, I'm more than ready. I'm probably the most ready in the room, to be totally honest, but I'm, I'm ready to go. Cool. Where, uh, wait, where's Sarah? Uh, she's running a couple minutes late. Hmm, it's unusual. Yeah. She's usually here first. You guys are sick f**ks! What? What? Hold on a second. What do we do? I'm sorry. Y'all said the topic was on probes, and I googled that, and my safe search was not on. I'm so grossed out. Mm. Oh my god. I, like, I seriously aged, like, ten years today. You, 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 <sighs> did, you did type, you know, space, space probes, probes right? right? Or space crafts. Oh. Yeah. Oh, that is a good topic. Oh, I'm not prepared. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Nerds on History. I'm Sarah Ashley. I'm Eric Brickmont. And I am still Brian Moriarty. Yeah, you are. And you're I, Sarah. And I'm still emotionally scarred. Yeah, you are. <laughs> Yeah, what you are looking at is uh, by no means the final frontier. Um, <laughs> Arguably the it, first frontier. It's one of the people. first yeah. frontiers <laughs> with the oldest profession. Um, <laughs> All right, getting it, getting off to a randy start here. Like this, yeah. We are. You already used one of your uh, your swears, and that was just let's just cold say open. that uh, Sarah is definitely not looking forward to age forty. I don't think I am either. <laughs> um, but you know, because you know colonoscopies yeah are oh thing. thank god that's where you were going right? and you know probes I mean, again yeah, you're talking he, about probes he's thinking colonoscopies i'm thinking well we ran out of other stuff to do <laughs> <laughs> i think that's the raunchiest we've ever taken this podcast all right oh my god i, I, knew, <clears throat> I knew something like this would happen <laughs> well you you both knew that when i got back I yep. was going to be deprived mm-hmm. of my podcasting, and then I'm going to want to do something that I really, really, really want to do. Yes. So uh, what do we decide on, of course? Space probes. Specifically, planetary exploration via unmanned space probes, for the most yeah. part. We'll talk a little bit about Apollo. Because arguably the first space probes was, you know, ancient man taking sticks and just poking at the sky going, There! There. <laughs> I'm probing yeah. you. I'm yeah. probing. Crawl- like climbing up to the tallest point and going... I can almost reach it. There is um, there is a Native American uh, legend about uh, the sky falling and having to use sticks to hold up the sky. And the holes that got poked in the sky that light went through became our stars. So, bam. First space probe, ancient Native American legend. Hey, that's, you know, I, I'm telling you also since the, you know, the the theories of Johannes Kepler, right? The the gentleman who discovered planetary motions and Sir Isaac Newton, the uh, the, the, the father of the Just of gravity. Of Isaac Newton. <laughs> wow, now Brian's swearing. I, I had no idea this was going to bring you all, bring it all out of you. Like We're this. really excited, Eric. <laughs> I could tell. We have to make it interesting somehow. <laughs> but people have been thinking about what would happen if you had a cannon that was powerful enough and you wanted to actually shoot a cannonball or other object up high enough. Could it get caught and orbit the earth could that happen so the idea of artificial satellites has been around for a really long time but it wasn't until the 1950s that the technology came into existence for us to actually be able to do it big enough cannon big enough cannon or nasty enough nazis is what it really comes down to (laughs) because folks uh we gotta lay some groundwork for this right this is a big topic this is a big topic. and as usual what usually advanced science is a war of some kind war and genocide in this case the Biggest war we've had in the last hundred years, World War Two. Yeah. Uh, well, I can I actually offer up a different war that kind of helped inspire space exploration. Sure. Star Wars. A War of the Worlds, maybe. Okay, absolutely. By H. G. Wells, Wells, who actually inspired the guy who investigated rocketry in the beginning, Robert Goddard. Who was like he was? He found his inspiration from that. Yeah, book. I mean, mankind has always had that imagination of being able to explore the stars and explore space. Sure, we talked about this in the history of sci-fi almost two years ago, where uh, we had legends of from ancient India of of ships that could to, could travel across the stars. Of course, and since Galileo looked up into the sky and and turned his telescope to the heavens for the first time, we've we've always dreamt about going there and doing that. But we had to take those first steps, and that meant getting off the ground. 
And, you know, there was all sorts of ideas about, could we build a hot air balloon that could actually get us up into space? And all sorts of crazy and interesting ideas. And sending, you know, high altitude jets and stuff up there. That's the, how we get to Mars. A star dirigible. <laughs> wow, Brian. Okay. Yeah, I'm just saying. Yeah, Brian. A Don't star judge dirigible. me. Don't judge I me. I think that was actually the original title for uh, Star Trek. It was, was Star Dirigible. <laughs> if I remember correctly. Yeah. Yeah. That would have been way better. <laughs> it just like, rolls just off the tongue. That would have been so much better. <laughs> God, I'm Captain Jean-Luc Picard of the Star Dirigible Enterprise. <laughs> Roddenberry had no imagination. <laughs> and his face palms. <laughs> These are the voyages of the Star Dirigible Enterprise. It turns out that lithium crystals are also inflatable. And they, they could actually inflate a giant balloon. <laughs> On its 80-day mission around the world. <laughs> wait, wait, I think we're mixing up a fiction, guys. Oh, that happens, yeah. Uh, okay. Let's bring it. Let's bring it back down to Earth so that we can leave Earth. Uh, the Nazis and their their vengeance program, right? So the V one and V two rockets, which were meant to rain death and destruction upon Britain and turn the tide of the war and bring it around so Hitler and his army of evil can take over the whole planet, right? Thankfully, didn't work out that well. What did end up happening is lots of Nazis got captured by Russians and Americans. So the Russians came in from the East and Allied forces came in from the West and they had different approaches to it. The Russians kidnapped Germans, threw bags over their head, put them in the cars, drove them off and threatened their lives and the lives of their family if they didn't work for them and build them rockets. As you do. As you do. <laughs> uh, America, on the other hand, said, oh, you're a Nazi. So how many people did you kill? Okay, that's not too bad. I think we can play with this. And then brought them back and set them up and gave them actually relatively nice living spaces and houses and stuff. So, so one, we bragged with violence. The other, we bragged with just money. Yeah. Like with just money. How American. Yikes. Exactly. <laughs> and ladies and gentlemen, thus enter the Cold War. <laughs> but, you know, the, obviously there's a lot more behind that. But that is how they laid the foundation for both of these countries to develop their space programs. Because initially the idea was, okay, well, the Nazis had weapons of mass destruction. We want to have them too. We have the bomb now, so we want to put the bomb on a rocket. So we're going to build a big rocket. So we want people to build the rockets for us. But those people, many of them, always had the dream, the vision, like Sarah's talking about, of getting into space and turning their rockets not for the purpose of destruction, but for exploration and science and knowledge and to propel the human race forward and not, you know, bury it underneath a, a mushroom cloud. And thankfully, it was those scientists and those people who planted the right ideas in the right propagandists in those countries to actually make this happen. Because, well, yeah, absolutely, we could go and have a whole new world war. Nobody really wanted that at the time. It was much easier to win the war through other means. And one of those things was to dominate in science and technology. And, you know, the Russians beat us to the punch and started this whole thing with what? Sputnik. Sputnik. Uh, Sputnik was a little 23-inch round ball of metal. It was uh, so tiny. It's so, it was a tiny little thing. It was a little baby. And it had four radio it's transmitters baby on space it. probe. Yeah. And uh, the, the concept and idea behind it was, okay, well, if we can get up there, we can keep it up there, and then we can send radio transmissions back down. And, you know, this will teach us a lot this will prove a lot of things one can we get into space what is it like in space is it a safe place is it a, a, a particularly dangerous place we don't think it's the greatest place for human beings to be or else we'd be in space already but could we potentially survive there ourselves? the only way to figure it out was to send up these unmanned probes these satellites it also proves something else equally as important that americans get jumpy <laughs> oh yeah they do and thanks to sputnik we now have direct tv <laughs> <laughs> yes, right. There's that too. <laughs> uh, among many other things. Yeah. But, yeah. but no, but this did send America into a freaking panic because they were yeah. seriously afraid that Russians were going to start descending on them from the skies. Sure. And this is where everybody had to really start practicing their ducking covers because of bombs and everything that could come colliding down on them from the Russians. It just continued this mass hysteria, which is really what both sides wanted. Yeah. They, they wanted this kind of panic. Uh, a, a feared population is an easy population to control or to manipulate on the other side of it all, right? And any American could walk outside and look up in the sky at just the right time and see it going by. It would look like a very bright star moving across the sky very quickly. And eventually ham radio operators were able to get the signal 
uh, because they, they found out what the, the Russian frequency was and they were able to broadcast that back to an American population who, again, were pretty nervous. Yeah. Uh, so what does the United States do? Well, Russia's got a probe up there. We got to send ours, right? Actually, it was America who had the idea first of sending an artificial satellite into space. Eisenhower went ahead and approved it before uh, Sputnik actually made it up there. So, you know, the Russians were already kind of planning on getting up there, but they moved up their timetable because of America. And usually people think it's the other way around, but really it was uh, it was America who really moved that forward. And we eventually put our own up a year later, Explorer 1. But at that point, Russia had already sent up two. You're right. They, they sent up Sputnik 2. They sent up Sputnik 2, which this is where I got really focused because it made me very sad. But it was the first animal in orbit. They sent up a, a stray dog named Laika. Laika, yeah. And Who's, was up there for quite a while. I don't. I think. I think he came down already. Might oh, still be up no, there. No, no, yeah, it came down and disintegrated. Um, but Laika was up there for a few hours, um, but there was a malfunction in the heating system, and she actually ended up um, dying of heat exhaustion. Which they didn't actually fess up to until like 2000. Right. This went up in 1957. <laughs> yeah. And they were lying about that for a very long time because well, the fact bad. that it's really screwed up yeah. to, I mean, dogs effectively have the, the learning capacity of about a three-year-old. So it's like sending a three-year-old up into space on its own. And at that point, most dogs were uh, uh, more cared about by the Russian population than cosmonauts. Yeah. So I can kind of understand this that. This is really sad. Yeah. But it proved that you could live in space. If yeah. you had the right environment and it lasted long enough, you could live in space. As long as your launch goes well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and what America did then, of course, to follow just, you know, that, uh, just a year later was to send uh, Explorer 1. Right. And Explorer 1 was smaller than Sputnik, unfortunately. Uh, in fact, the Russians criticized it and called it the grapefruit probe because uh, <laughs> it was only about the size of a large grapefruit, about mm -hmm. nine inches in diameter. But... It had a lot more scientific equipment on it than Sputnik did. And it actually discovered the uh, Van Allen radiation belt, right. which is generated by the Earth's magnetic field. It was something that was theorized, but this is what confirmed it. Correct. And we've just recently sent up a whole new bunch of probes that have gone out into the Van Allen radiation belt just this year, uh, who are making discoveries as we speak, which is kind of a neat parallel mm -hmm. to see all those, all those years later. Also, space is messy because there's so many freaking satellites and space debris up there oh, right there's now. Tons of crap and garbage in yep. particularly low Earth orbit, but also in mid to high Earth orbit. And it's 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 a scary place, especially if you're an astronaut on, a, on the International Space Station. Uh, they practice evacuation drills regularly. You saw gravity. Mm -hmm. That that whole idea, while highly dramatized and and you know blown a little bit out of proportion, is in theory a potential reality i mean you yeah. can have space debris you know the size of a ballpoint pen cause a very serious problem right but that's this is you know there was nothing up there at the time so sputnik was fine yeah the poor doggy died but not from a collision but from from it's still exposure. sad it is sad but just as soon as that happens now that you've actually made it to space what's the next step well you gotta send people yeah and if you're gonna spend all the time and energy to send people up into space then where else are you gonna go the moon. The moon, Because right. it's like the closest thing. <laughs> exactly. And for eons, people have looked up at the moon and wondered what it would be like on mm -hmm. there. You know, there's ancient uh, Chinese stories and, and myths about whole civilizations living up on the moon. Um, Jules Verne wrote, from the earth to the moon. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there's that fantasy, that dream of what might be up there. And... One of the first films about the man on the moon and a yeah. rocket going to the moon. Absolutely. What I find... Is funny, though, of course, is the governments behind it all wanted to use politics as their propellant to get up there where it was the scientific community who, who wanted to use discovery. But that's yeah. okay, because they merged together and they eventually became what we know as like, NASA. And scientists other... is like, you like satellites? Well, the moon's a satellite, kind of. Kind of. Well, in a different, kind of, is it? It is. In, in yeah. a different context. Let's uh, let's go there. Yeah. Actually, in the original context. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, what do the Russians do? Well, they launch Luna 1. Uh, in January 2nd, 1959. So this is just two short years after Sputnik is launched um, with a flyby of the moon. And that sent America into an even bigger panic. Now NASA had to really kick it up. Uh, and we followed in kind with, with Pioneer 4. Uh, now, 
this first couple of years, there was a lot of success, right? So Luna's two and three on the Russian side produced uh, the first images of the far side of the moon. And in the case of Luna two, uh, the first planned crash. Didn't uh-huh. it also um, discover solar wind? Yes. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of big discoveries happening in a very, very short amount of time. But in the 1960s, things would change up a little bit because they were moving so fast in an effort to compete with one another that a lot of things were being cut. A lot of safety was being put to the side. You know, these folks who were the first astronauts, they were not scientists like they're oftentimes today. They were pilots mostly, right? More than just pilots. They were test pilots. These are the guys who strapped their ass to things that they know could potentially explode. These were the ones who had the right stuff. These are kamikaze pilots. (laughs) Yeah. And of course, had the name, the appropriately named movie as well. Yeah. And I'll, I'll tell you, you know, when you're sitting atop a rocket where the one just before the one you got on exploded, but you know, the one just before it was okay. That's how you know you got guts. Because mm-hmm. they were blowing these things up left and right. Yeah. And these astronauts in between their training were out there watching these launches go and <laughs> watching them blow and thinking, my God, what do we get ourselves into? Right. But one thing that really helped these guys on the ground was getting those unmanned spacecraft up there. Because uh, a lot of them that attempted to go up ended because of instrumentation failure on the rockets themselves. Many of them blew up on the pad. Many of them blew up uh, in high Earth orbit. And those were the, the test rockets that were going up, right? They didn't want to waste the rockets. So they were trying to send as much as they could up early on if they could. A lot of them were unpayloaded, but the ones that were also taught a lot. Uh, and the ones that made it through that really scary period, right? Because in the whole year of 1960, only a single one actually survived any kind of uh, ascent, and that was Pioneer 5. Pretty much uh, everything else had blown up or been destroyed. Kind of scary. But in 1961, that's when they finally get a man into space. And is it American? Uh, no, right? Oh, don't tell me you guys don't know. Who was the first person in space, ladies and gentlemen? Oh, our listeners are screaming. Probably. Screaming along with me. It's not John Glenn. No. It's John Glenn. Oh, oh, so I, I know I John Glenn. John Glenn a little bit. That's why I said I said, it, I said it's not John Glenn. So but your mind went to Glenn. Your mind went to no, Glenn. it went. No, it was it was like, I know it's not that. And the name is on the tip of my tongue. I'm looking at the hu- first human space flight. And it says Yuri Gagarin. And that was <laughs> a Vostok 1 in 1961. Yuri Gagarin. Whatever. Not whatever. First man in space, Sarah. Bite your tongue. Well, hey, I'm not seeing you we're, tongue. Mm, Thank you. this is, we're American uh, <laughs> education system right now. Uh, see, this Does is an not equal opportunity podcast. We are, right, we are yeah. acknowledging the accomplishments yes. of the Soviet yes. Union. Yes, I'm actually I glad to learn this. <laughs> Yuri Gagarin, the first man in, state, in space across, uh, on Vostok 1. And we, we, they made it. They beat us. They beat us by just a little bit. Uh, of course, we would send up, not John Glenn... But Mr. Shepard, Shepard would go right. up first, then Glenn, yes. uh, into very low Earth orbit for about 15 minutes. It wasn't you know, substantial like the later uh, ones would be when Glenn actually orbited the Earth. But we got somebody up there. And with that, once we had the technology to get people up there and we had it consistent enough to start sending more probes, that's when we start seeing things really start to move really propel the Russians also put in the first woman in space they did put the first woman mm-hmm. in space Valentina Tereshkova uh, that one the, I knew they had the first spacewalk shocking they <laughs> landed a probe on Venus uh, they landed the first probe on any other planet uh, they had the first land rover on the moon they had a small one and they had the big one that they drove around it was a five man team that was all you know re- uh, remote operated with a five second delay but they were able to drive this thing the size of a small car around on the moon long before you know we landed ours yeah but we sent a chimp into space and had the first tasks performed so what's up that's true we did send the first <laughs> chimp the chimp came back alive and actually had a, a, a press conference so that's better than what the dog got but <laughs> the idea at the time was america will do it better but we'll do it second the yeah. russians were beating us all the time and they were pouring huge amounts of effort into this and tons of money and it was ultimately going to be a really bad strategy because uh, a lot of the stuff that they were sending up, a lot of the unmanned stuff was blowing up left and right, too. Their accomplishments were crashing things. OK, it didn't land, but we were the first to crash. That was how the Russians were looking <laughs> at it. Uh, I guess that's the first of something, right? 
of course, however, we did have the very first successful planetary encounter, and that was with Mariner 2. And Mariner 2 was very important for a lot of reasons. Uh, one, we were able to do it successfully and get very close to the planet of Venus, 16,000 kilometers nearby, which is pretty darn close. I mean, that for a time when we could barely get something to the moon without it crashing into it, right. that was pretty good. And we got the very first scientific data of another planet, including Venus's rotation, which is opposite to that of Earth. And we noticed that it's tidally locked to the sun. So one side of Venus is always in perpetual sunlight and the other is always in darkness. Really? Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, we observed its clouds and its magnetic field for the first time with scientific information or instruments that brought that information back to planet Earth. So that was the first time we did that. And the Mariner series spacecrafts were, were pretty fantastic. I mean, they were cheap, they were small, they were quick and easy to build, uh, but they were the stuff that got us going, that got us up there. And it took a lot just to get that, because we were fighting Congress left and right. NASA had such a hard time just to get these unmanned probes up there, just so we could be doing science in addition to politics. But due to you know some really amazing NASA administrators, we were able to keep moving forward. And the next big accomplishment would be with Mariner 4. Mariner 4 was the very first to fly by Mars. So here's this planet. And it got even closer to Mars than it did to Venus, right? Yes. It got close enough to produce 25 black and white photos uh, that were very, very simple. But they painted a picture of Mars for the first time because telescopes on Earth were only powerful enough to notice very basic features of Mars. Many of them were thought to be intricate canals and and works of ancient civilizations that have been up there for hundreds of thousands of years and some people were thinking well you know what are we actually going to find when we get to mars so many people were disappointed with venus because they thought venus was going to be a lush planet like earth a place where we could colonize and it turned out to be this hellhole i mean literally hell on earth uh, or on venus hell on venus, <laughs> hell on venus. <laughs> but with mars there was hope still that wasn't until these there's got to be a martian somewhere there's got to be right <laughs> And instead, it was a barren, cold, dry, crater-ridden planet. Not at all what people were hoping it would be. They were expecting to see water flowing on the surface of Mars. But there was still the hope that maybe, just maybe, there were aliens. Maybe they're hiding down in those craters. Maybe they were in those gorges. But uh, we wouldn't know until we started taking this beyond just flyby missions. Because flybys, in theory, are pretty simple, right? You get them going on a pre-planned trajectory... You let them go, they take a couple quick pictures, and they keep on going until their batteries run out or their solar panels go Effectively to crap. Effectively like the Google yeah. car of yeah, space. kind of. <laughs> they're just there to take a quick picture and they're done. They're just mapping. Yeah, exactly. They, they were the the scouts, the advanced scouts for the next generation of, of interplanetary uh, ships. Uh, this, of course, wasn't before Russia reintroduced its passion for Venus because well America's always kind of been obsessed with Mars Russia has always been obsessed with Venus interesting I wonder why culturally I wonder why that is I don't know it's, I find that very interesting it is kind of I think you know Venus was somewhere that was closer and easier to get to so you could send a lot more science sure. there a lot faster but at the same time I think America's propelled by the mystery whereas Russia's propelled by the pride in doing it so mm. if you have the opportunity to get it done I can see that being more typical of yeah. the Russian persona. I mean, you have that, but I think you also, you have the fiction of Wells and Burroughs who spent so much time creating this whole idea of what Mars was supposed to be like. Like you talked about this whole fascination with right. life on another planet. Then maybe we just had that kind of intimate connection with it. And it is interesting though to think in retrospect too, with the pictures we've gotten from Mars, even though we now know that the atmosphere is very different than what we originally imagined how much it actually looks like earth uh is from from like a desert kind of perspective sure. you know we now know because of our time that we've spent exploring mars that in its past it was a very wet place it was very much like earth was you know a billion years ago and it went through a change it went through a lot of changes that led to where it is now and if it wasn't for the fact that it essentially has no magnetic field of any substance preventing the solar winds from bombarding it and turning it into a desert wasteland. It could very well be like other planetary systems that we think that are out there that have multiple planets in that Goldilocks zone that harbor life. It could have been Earth too. It could have been the other Earth. But it wasn't. And that's okay because there still might be life on Mars. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. We're not ready to get to Mars yet because we're not even ready to get into orbit 
around Mars yet. Because the Russians have to crash something else on Venus first. So the Venera series you know, program, right, with the Russians, was obsessed with Venus. And they were the first to actually get it onto another planet's surface mm-hmm. in pieces. Again, the Russians were totally okay with just crashing like, the We got to Venus, everybody. You know, they were in one piece? Well, they also, Not quite, but we got to Venus. Because <laughs> Luna crashed into, into the moon, right? Right. Yeah. Several of them did. Uh, but Luna 9 in 1966 actually made the first landing. The first soft landing. Yes, the first intentional <laughs> soft landing. Soft being the operative word here. <laughs> and they did it again with Luna 10 just a few months later. We didn't crash it. We didn't crash it. <laughs> but I'll tell you, I mean, the Russians were continuing to get into, you know, Venus's orbit and get, or not orbit, excuse me, but getting into the atmosphere and really doing some pretty amazing science. And it's so sad because when you see these space documentaries for the time, they're always focused on, you know, Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, the manned missions. And you never really hear much about what was going on with the early stuff. And a right. lot of that's where the Russians were focused. And I love to see something really well put together documenting, you know, Russia's effort to, to get into space because they did a lot of really incredible stuff. And America, you know, was working off of a lot of that and vice versa too. But America was really being propelled forward with that as well. And America was sending all of its stuff to the moon at the same time. Don't get me wrong. I'm just talking about the first and most notables, which just happened to be the Russians at this time making all those advances. And I think something that's really cool also to know is that you, uh, the U S was also thinking ahead. They're thinking long-term space exploration, Right. right? Because in 1966, they just did, they also did the first orbital docking between two spacecraft. Correct. Which, and that was in preparation for when they would send up both the command module mm-hmm. and also the lander, yeah. the lunar lander. They had to, to, you know, detach from one another and then then dock together. Right. Uh, and not only that, but you have Apollo 8, which sends the first men actually around the moon, in orbit around the moon. They didn't land on the moon. They just went in orbit around the moon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was pretty fundamental. That was uh, on uh, December 21st, 1968. And uh, they sent back this incredible image of the Earth rising on the lunar horizon, this famous Earth rise photo. Um, and they sent back this incredible recording on Christmas Eve of that year. And it just, it was a pivotal moment in human history. But you're right, America was was focused on getting people actually on that moon mm-hmm. and, and, and not spending as much effort as the Russians were in the automated process. Right. You know, even though the Russians were doing a lot of cool stuff, though. I mean, they're sending probes, landers, and little Oh, stuff that's absolutely, and... you know, crucial to, you know, like, say, the Mars rover and that kind of technology. Absolutely. I mean, they were landing on the moon and then sending samples back. And we went up there to send people down to pick them up. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's kind of like, well, you know, America spent all this money designing a pen that would work in zero gravity. What do the Russians bring with them? Pencils. <laughs> so that's not just a funny joke. That That's actually that's the, the truth. truth. That's actually yeah. the truth, yeah. <laughs> it is funny, but it's also the truth. So in the 1960s, obviously, America's focused really on getting man to the moon, which they do in 1969. They fulfill Kennedy's dream. They land. Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin with Mike Collins up in orbit in the in the command module. And it's an it's an amazing experience. Just before that, because America pretty much knew Russia was not going to make it to the moon. They had overextended themselves. They had a whole bunch of, you know, failed attempts to get their really big stuff, their flagship stuff up in the air. And uh, as a result, by 1967, we pretty much knew we had won this. We just needed to get it done. And we need to get it done without an American dying. Right. And that would be a success. Congress knew that. Congress said, you know what? You're not going to need any more money. We're going to start cutting you back dramatically. And this was horrible for NASA because NASA was composed of so many scientists who had gone into NASA with this hope, this dream of being able to bring science forward through what was happening. Sure. And they were very quickly having those dreams dashed. So there was a lot of maneuvering. There was a lot of debate. There was a lot of making deals to make all this work. But... I mean, you know, NASA would maintain its planetary exploration budget, but it would be scaled back dramatically. Just just thinking about this perspective, and I know I'm not the first person to bring this up, but thinking about between 1900, was it 03, 1906, that the Wright brothers made the first flight? Uh, It was Kitty Hawk in 06, I believe. I think it was 06. 06. Okay, so between 1906 and just a little over 60 years later, we we made it to the moon. Yeah. Right? That is that in of itself is amazing. 
Oh, yeah. From a human perspective. If we had not dropped the funding, I mean, it is fun for us to think about the what ifs. Like, what would have been our next move? Could we have, now that we're, you know, getting close to 50 years since the moon landing. 1903. Have, what? Oh, 1903. 1903. Oh, 1903. Okay. Oh, you're sorry. thinking of the earthquake in San Francisco. That was 1906. Yeah, I keep getting mixed up. Um <laughs> <laughs> I try to save your ass, Brian. And you throw yourself back under the bus. I did. I did totally. Well, when in doubt, just call myself stupid. Um, <laughs> so, nevertheless, still a little over sixty years after the first flight, right? We have, or the first flight of an airplane, we should say, uh, we get to the moon, right? And thinking we're almost fifty years since the moon landing. Had mm-hmm. NASA's funding not been cut, had the Cold War taken a different direction, where would we be now? Could we be at Mars already? Could we, oh, we, have... we would be at Mars for sure. The colonization of space is a much more difficult thing than, than science fiction would have you believe. Sure. Particularly because of the amount of radiation that's in space and the effects that low gravity environments do have well, on the Well, right. the time involved in traveling that distance. And the amount of effort it takes to actually leave Earth atmosphere mm-hmm. and Earth's gravity is the biggest cost yeah. of it all. Though NASA's con- concept for a starship got me really geeking out because it, it's essentially, it's in theory what warp drive would have, is like on Star Trek. Yeah. So the fundamentals are there. If we had not lost our funding, could we have actually built that thing sooner? Built the that? Question. I don't know. Built much better and more efficient propulsion systems than we have available to us right now? Almost certainly. Uh, we would have had, you know, like these really neat little ion drives that are being used by, by New Horizons and what have you. We would have had those years ago. But the what ifs aren't the point. The problem is we keep living in the what ifs. We need to focus on what happened and where we can go with it now and rekindle this passion and dream that people had back then. And we need people, more people like James Webb. So James Webb was a NASA administrator. He was the guy who really petitioned to make, you know, unmanned exploration a reality to continue to not cut its funding completely. Uh, And he proposed an idea where we would create some mixture of both more advanced spacecraft that were designed to actually orbit, not just flyby, and also some smaller, quicker flyby missions. And the point was to keep things going, keep sending stuff up so that people wouldn't lose interest in the program, but also design a few of the really big ones, the flagship ones that are going to be able to go up there and do some super serious science. And in 1971, we find that Mariner 9 becomes the very first uh you know, orbiter, essentially, to ever come around and orbit another planet. And with it, it produces a whole new set of photos. But to the dismay of NASA scientists when it got there, there was a massive uh, sandstorm that was going over the entire Mm -hmm. planet. The whole surface of the planet was covered in dust. And this was right when they got there, right when they thought they were going to get these amazing photos. And they had to wait about two months for the dust to finally settle. But when it did, what they saw was breathtaking because it was this absolutely stunningly gorgeous planet. It wasn't this sketchy black and white barren area like the moon was in the, in the you know Mariner 4 photos. It had these enormous canyons and gouges in the earth and mountains, you know, multiple times the height of Mount Everest. I mean, it was a breathtaking and striking environment. And it rekindled that passion and imagination. And now it wasn't enough to just be in orbit around another planet. We needed to land on it. And that just gives me goosebumps thinking about it. You can see them <laughs> across the table. I just, I love, I, this is why I get so passionate about this. Because I put myself in the minds and the, and the hopes and dreams of those people who made this a reality. And it really just inspires me. And it really, it really does. And getting there, uh, getting there was great. But uh, we had a few other places we wanted to go to. So Mariner 10, the very last in the Mariner series, which was uh, another flyby, ended up visiting not just Venus, but also Mercury. And it was the very first probe ever to visit Mercury and would stay that way just Mm -hmm. up until recently. Oh, wow. We've only recently sent a probe back to Mercury. That's how kind of tricky it is to, to get there and keep something there and keep it in a functional order because it is so close to the sun and the, the temperatures that you're dealing with are a lot more extreme than yeah, places than you say. are in the outer solar system, right? So, you know, in the photos that we've been getting from Messenger, which is the, the probe that's been orbiting Mercury uh, and has just recently finished its mission, is amazing. Really some breath, breathtaking stuff. Uh, and it's so easy to go online and, and check it all out. And that was in in 1973 when when Mariner, the very last Mariner, did its thing. 
So then you come back to the drawing board again. How are we going to keep things going? And like I said, we had those quick little ones, but then we also had some concepts and ideas to go further out and to explore in the outer solar system. So just a quick little science lesson for everybody involved. Our solar system is composed of kind of layers of areas, kind of like an onion, if you will, right? So you have the innermost area where the four rocky solid planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, right? Okay. And then you have uh, an area of kind of the, the wild zone, kind of out in the boonies, and that's in the asteroid belt. And there's a whole lot of leftover debris and material that never really formed into planets or did form into early protoplanets that were then kind of blown apart through their collisions with other protoplanets. And what it left behind is this kind of wild part of space. Mm -hmm. um, and this is something that NASA wanted to check out because if we were going to go beyond that into the outer solar system where Jupiter, Neptune, Uranus, and Neptune, or sorry, let me say it again. Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune exist, then we had to make sure it was safe to actually get out there. And Let's... say it, Eric. Say it. What? Pluto. I can't anymore. I want to. Pluto's a dwarf planet. I love it. I'll always think of it a planet. Weren't they, I weren't they, re planet. Weren't they reconsidering reinstating it? Isn't yeah. that... Because if they did that, then they'd have to institute all these other... Series and all the yeah. other, other... So... I still think Pluto's a planet. And it should be in, in all rights. My father's like... Make Pluto a planet. Have 15 planets. Who gives a crap? Have 47 planets. Let's have planets. <laughs> All right. You get a planet. You get a planet. You it's like Oprah for planets. Yeah, it's it's look under your seat, folks. There's one waiting for you. Uh, <laughs> really? Everybody gets a planet. <laughs> and that's where a lot of these were, were the pioneer missions were focused on because these really were the pioneers, right? These Which, are the guys and who went out there. Just for just for time context, yeah. um the Mariner 10 and, and Pioneer 10, those were like 73, 74, right? right? Okay. But there were other pioneers that were going on before that. And right. they were, you know, they were kind of running in conjunction with one another. But right. they all had a grand scheme that was playing out, yeah. right? I just want to give people a sense of where we are in the timeline. No, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, eventually, Pioneer 10 and 11 are the ones who do make it out. They make it past the asteroid belt and they make it into the Jovian system for the first time. And we get our first up-close view of Jupiter. Not seen through the eyepiece of a telescope, right. but through the camera of a probe that was sent out and powered, not by solar power, uh, but by decaying plutonium. What? Nuclear Science. powered. <laughs> yes. This is one of the very first probes to use radioisotope thermoelectric generators, which are so freaking cool, which is essentially just taking nuclear waste, yeah. letting it get really hot, and then siphoning off that energy and using that to power the probes. And they last for a good long time. They, they lose about, uh, what is it, f five to ten watts of power every four to six years or something like that. I can't remember exactly what it is. But, you know, the Voyager probes are still sending back signals, albeit yeah. weak, but they're still operating. Yeah. Uh, because of this this ingenious and, and idea. it's not gonna like run out to like 2020 or something 2025 like that, right? yeah is when the batteries will go dead finally right. and we may not even be receiving signals by that time if we do they're gonna be pretty faint but mm -hmm. it, it's it's possible certainly uh and what pioneer really set the plan for was the grand tour and the grand tour is this really great great idea because about every 170 some odd years the gas giants right the outer planets they all align in almost this perfect single row it's something that you know astrologists have been looking at for a long time and early astronomers were aware of and people used to read their fates by it and all that crap whatever you know hear about the planets aligning it's it's garbage but when they do align like that it's it's a field day for science because you're able to send a single probe or in this case two probes and more or less have them follow the same trajectory but be able to hit all yeah. four planets. How freaking cool was that? I mean, you couldn't pass that up. Even if you were cutting back the budget dramatically, you could not pass up the opportunity. Right. And Pioneers 10 and 11, what they did is they proved that we could get out there, right? So Pioneers 10 and uh, Pioneer 10 made it to Jupiter. We got our very first look at the Galilean moons for the first time. They were a little blurry. They weren't too phenomenal of photos, but they were pretty good. You could see the Great Red Spot, this enormous hurricane that has been going on in Jupiter for hundreds of years, in full beauty, in color, right? In color. Ooh, what a cool concept. Right? <laughs> and then finally, uh, Pioneer 10 would continue on and give us our view of Saturn, which is 
arguably right behind Pluto, I think, the most popular planet in in, in popular culture. I mean, people well, love yeah. it because of its rings. And it's, it's got rings. Yeah, it's, it, it is. The universe liked planet. it so much, it put a ring on it. Yeah, there you <laughs> go. It's it's the Beyonce of planetary exploration. <laughs> they liked it, so they put a ring on it. And uh, I'm sorry, that was really bad, but my kids play that song all the time, so it's in my brain. Uh and while they were planning that, they were also planning to go and land on Mars and to do it in a really fantastic way. And this is where the competition with the Russians was still going on because Russia was very dedicated to get to Mars. By 71, when we were just thinking about how we're going to get to Mars, they were already crashing crap onto it. So, <laughs> <laughs> Again, we, we we lead the way with crashing. With yes. 19th of May, 1971, the now very first the, here, impact, Mars impact. Here's my question. Does this actually lead the way as for why they like to film their car crashes? Is just, that... If they had GoPros the at the time, they would be on there watching oh, this all happen. Absolutely, it would I just be. get this image of a very like excited Russian rocket scientist saying, yes, we crash it. <laughs> crash it. So the first time they crashed it with Mars 2, they crashed. But the second one, they landed. But it only worked for 14.5 seconds. This is not bad on second try. <laughs> <laughs> This is very good. What what are we looking at? Okay, it's mostly black picture. All right, what is this down here? This looks like Horizon. No, that's not Horizon. Okay, fine. <laughs> that was pretty much the conversation in, in Russia's command center at that time because it transmitted seventy lines of resolution back. But the, the people were thinking, oh, maybe it's a Horizon, but the, they don't think it was anything. It was a picture, but it was like <laughs> it was like leaving, leaving your lens cap on when you took the picture. And when did they? So when did this happen? And that was in uh, 1971 as well. 71, so okay. those two missions, Mars um, 2 and 3, were only a couple of days apart. They were seven days apart from each other, which is incredibly close for concurrent missions. And we were just happily landing people on the moon while Russia was cra- ran, you know, crashing stuff into other planets, but whatever. Uh, and once Pioneer 10 and 11 had made their run and had you know done their thing, it was finally time to get the big boys out. And well, real quick, I yes. do before we gloss over this because we are talking about our relationship with Russia. In in seventy five, we actually decided to start to actually work together and had a multinational manned mission. I know we're not focusing on manned That's missions true. when we we had the the Soyuz Apollo uh, right mission. So we we joined not just two spacecrafts from one country, but from two countries right, and had them them dock together, and they they all had yeah. a fun time in space, and then. In 76, there was the closest flyby of the sun with the U.S. and West Germany. Right. So this is where we're starting to see, like, the, the beginnings. The Helio A, yes. Yeah, the beginnings of, of, of working together as a global community for and, space exploration. And again, with Helio B, they would, they would get an even closer approach. Uh, and, you know, you're right. And the European Space Agency would be sh- formed shortly after that. And then you would you would find them going out and exploring space on their own. And we'll talk more about that when we get into the modern era, for sure. But, right. you know, obviously in the early days, it was really America and Russia, and they were the only players. Well, considering that we're, like, starting, like, despite the Cold War happening, that we were able to to do that. Yeah. Like, I these agree. are these are good things to to remember, that it's all... That science is above politics. <laughs> it is. It is. And it's also worth mentioning another important Russian uh, event. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was in June of 1975 when uh, the very first Venus orbiter, so they made it into orbit around Venus, whereas we had made it into Mars. Uh, but they also had their first lander in the first surfaces, uh, surface photos, excuse me, from Venus right. were, were sent back to Earth uh, and just proved that it was not somewhere you want a vacation. <laughs> no, seriously, this place sucks. <laughs> yeah, no, it's like, why Why do we keep going back? I don't understand. Uh, and because little, it's pretty. Can we really know, distill vodka from atmosphere? I don't think this is worthwhile. The crazy part is the probe came back, its hubcaps were missing, and there were bullet holes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Venus is a nasty place. Um, but in that same year, and just a few months later, America landed the very first successful probe onto the Martian surface. And this was with Viking 1. Viking 1, we'll talk about a a little bit later. It's worth mentioning because it's part of the timeline. But we're going to talk all about Mars exploration um, in a little while. We'll we'll get to that at some point. Uh, But we're going to skip ahead a couple of years before we go back. And we're going to finish this particular segment uh, with Voyagers 1 and 2. Not to be confused with Star Trek. No, 
Or with Voyager, was it like Voyager 9 or something like that that they ca- capture? Or Okay, so the plot for the original Star Trek movie, the motion picture, was that one of our probes had gotten so far out and assimilated by an ancient alien civilization completely composed of machines that they upgraded its intelligence and then sent it back. <laughs> I like it. It was a really long movie with some incredibly long establishing shots and it was a little bit boring and this is coming from a Star Trek fan. Wow. But, you know, it had a good it had its good parts. It's just I, like conceptually that's a great concept. It is. It is kind of cool. Yeah. Uh but the grand tour came to reality uh with like uh, or sorry with uh, Voyager's 1 and 2. But we have a very special person to thank for it. Uh, because in 1961, grad student Michael Minovich proposed an idea that would actually allow this to happen. Because not only did the planets need to align, but we needed to be able to get out there and keep going the way we wanted to. And propulsion systems at that time just were not capable of making that happen. So that's when the concept of gravity assist comes into existence. And this is exactly how we get out to big planets today. This is yeah. how we send pretty much everything out to the far reaches of our solar system. And this is to first initially use Earth's gravity to kind of wind you up a little bit and build momentum and then slingshot you on a you know direct direct trajectory. You know what I'm trying to say? Trajectory. Thank you. And be captured first by Jupiter's orbit, because Jupiter being the largest planet in our solar system has a massive gravitational field. And Pioneer's 1011 proved that the radiation coming off of Jupiter would not completely destroy electrical equipment it would if you got too close and it set the boundary for that so so voyagers one and two they knew the sweet spot they knew how to get right in and while they were making this slingshot with jupiter which would really get them gaining some speed they took some of the most striking photos that had been taken to that point we got some up close pictures of the you know jovian moons in particular io which is this actively volcanic world You know, the solar system wasn't this barren wasteland any longer. It was a real living place. And you can't see it, but Sarah's face is grimacing right now. She hates volcanoes. I really do. Because the entire surface is completely covered with them. It looks kind of like Mustafar. Think of like the scene from Star Wars Episode 3 where like Obi-Wan and Anakin are duking it out. The planet, I imagine, looks somewhat, the planet, the moon, I imagine, looks somewhat like that. Yeah, it's, it's a nasty place, but it's really freaking cool. Uh, it's got these massive sulfurous volcanoes. It's, it's just a really awesome place. Oh, so it smells great, too. Oh, yeah. It smells like rotten eggs, too. But they also discovered other really beautiful planets that we knew were there since Galileo's time, but we'd never seen up close, like Ganymede. Planets or moons? Excuse Pardon me. Moons. Uh, they're very <laughs> big, though. They're very, very big. Uh, you have Ganymede, which is kind of like the, the king of them all, a really big one, but which we just recently discovered has a liquid ocean underneath, uh, as does, we think, Europa. Uh, and... Where there's water, there's potentially life. And up to that point, no one ever thought of the outer solar system as being a place where life could be. But now it proposed a whole new way of thinking. Right. If the gas giants themselves couldn't sustain life because they had no land, why not the moons? Exactly. Life would have to adapt to the radiation that's being spit out, but it's still possible. So we would have nuclear-proof alien life? Is that what you're saying? Not nuclear, but we'd have radiation-resistant. Hey, radiation resistance is a good thing. That means we can't use the nukes on them. That's fantastic. You can use nukes. They do more than just radiation, Brian. Yeah, there's a lot but of don't. force there. Why are you being so violent? Where are your violent tendencies? Why do we? From? Why is it automatically? Can we nuke them? Yeah. <laughs> that is such an American thing to say. Okay, there may be life, but can we nuke it? So <laughs> just in case, the Russians, the Russians buddy, are worried about running into them, and we so just want to learn how to blow them. My, up. my buddy Brian, he's been on Nerds on Film Nap. He wants to eventually run for president, and he wants to run on the platform of nuking the moon. And here's why: because when he becomes president, he wants to nuke the moon, and said, "Look, we just nuked the moon." And we like the moon. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) You know what? I bet he'd probably get elected, too. (laughs) Just to say that we did it, we can. Yes, we can. (laughs) Yes, Yes, we we can. can. We want a green moon. How are we going to get that green moon? All of our nukes. (laughs) So, no, we're not nuking the moon. We're not nuking anyone, Brian. But my point being, God. The, I have to. Uh, I have to say something. I love it's it. All I have. <laughs> we liked the moon. That's the best part of that. <laughs> if you're gonna nuke anyone, no, don't do that. Never mind. No, nope, just let's uh, not answer that question. If you're if you're gonna 
go out to the Jovian system, though, and you're going to at least fly by. You've got to take a picture of some of the big boys. That of are course. Out there. Yes. And they discovered additional moons. They discovered that Jupiter actually has a ring around it, just like Saturn does. It's a teeny tiny little bitty ring, but it does have one. Cheap. Oh. The universe was cheap on that one. <laughs> and Voyager 1 continued on to Saturn and got some amazing photos there, but its trajectory was designed to take it outside of the solar system sooner than Voyager 2. And we'll get to that part in a moment. Because Voyager 2 also does its flyby of Jupiter, builds up its speed speed with the gravitational assist, goes to Saturn, does the same thing again on Saturn, and this time goes to visit Uranus. Sorry, Uranus. <laughs> you know, I was I was writing notes on my iPhone earlier, and I kept trying to use Uranus. Siri to write Uranus, which is how I've always said it, and she couldn't get it. And then I finally said Uranus, and she ended up writing Uranus correctly. But anyhow. Nice. Uh, Uranus was a was a big surprise for a lot of people. People didn't know quite what to expect. They didn't know exactly what it was going to look like because the best image you could resolution on. <laughs> Shut up, God. God. I seriously. I'm Why sorry. haven't they changed its name yet? What's wrong with it? It's fine. Get your heads out of the gutter, out sorry, of Uranus. Sorry, again, this is all I have to say. I I wonder if it's as filthy in other languages as it is in English. How did this end up being the raunchiest podcast we've ever done? I don't know. And it's on mm, probably because, because probes <laughs> and space. I'm amazed that when we talked about probing Venus. It's like no one said did we buy her a drink first. We didn't talk about any of that. That didn't happen. Well, now it did. Why did Venus have to be a woman? Because she, in mythology, is a she woman. She is actually a woman. Well, and Goddess Mars could be a woman. Mars was a man in mythology. I don't care about God mythology. I'm talking about, like, gendering planets right now. Oh, God. <laughs> I think you're reading way too much into this. It was a simple joke. What well, would you like Uranus on. to no, be? Fine. What? What would you like your Uranus to be? Male or female? Oh, generally male. Okay. So, the male now, Uranus. There is... <laughs> looks like when she looked at probes, she found out some new ways to experiment. Let's move on, shall we? Anyway, we went to this place and we discovered that it's it's a kind of freakish, bizarre world that is just racked by these absolutely insane winds uh, that that would just rip you to pieces if you try to get anywhere close to the to the to the surface. Just really incredible place with some beautiful moons, absolutely gorgeous moons. And finally, Neptune was the um, was the last marker on that journey. They wanted to go to Pluto. They had a plan to go to Pluto, but they couldn't get it to work just right. It was going to require too much additional fuel to be able to maneuver things, and at those speeds, it was really dicey. So they decided to play it safe, and let's just do the big boys, and we'll leave Pluto for the future. And do you know what's happening in July of this year? What? What's happening in July? We are finally going to get an up-close-and-personal look at Pluto. Everyone's favorite non-planet. We're finally going to get a we'll look We'll actually at it. get a picture of what it really looks like. Yes. Because when we were doing our fifth grade solar system project, I chose Pluto. Was it because it was the easiest one? Yes. But <laughs> the one thing I do regret from it is all the stuff we knew about Pluto at that point was we think it's gray. Like <laughs> at, at, this was 20 years ago. Keep in mind. I think I'm very fascinated. I would think be, I'm thinking it's pink. I'm just throwing it, gonna throw it out there. Uh, the current thinking is it's probably peachish. Not peach-ish. too far from the truth. In fact, I I'm like showing uh, both Brian and Sarah a artist concept of what they think it may look like in a few months when we actually get there. Oh, oh nice. wow! It's kind of like a peachy version of Earth. Sort of. Mm-hmm. It's a little peachy, a little moldy. Yeah, a little moldy looking. Moldy and peach. when we do actually see it, however, it's it's not going to look quite like that photo. It might look a little bit more like this because uh, a portion of it will be obstructed in shadow. We won't be able to see it full on like we have. This when... is perfect for an audio podcast, by the way. <laughs> I know. I'm describing it. So I'm showing them a picture of Pluto that is partially obstructed by shadow. And Charon, which is it's a moon that orbits Pluto, uh, when it comes around the backside of where that shadow is, it might be able to illuminate enough of it that we'll see a little bit more of a okay. complete image. Okay. So we'll see what we get. Uh, but it will be close. So just for some context, though, yes. being that... Pluto is something we're going to get recently. Uh, Voyager 1 did its Jupiter flyby in 79. Voyager 1 did its Saturn flyby in 1980. And then Voyager 2 got the uh, Uranus flyby in 86. Uranus, yes. And then uh, it got the Neptune flyby in 89. 89. That's how long this thing's been going out there. And it's still 
going. And that's yeah. where we'll, we'll wrap up today because the Voyager probes, these folks, they are outside of our solar system at this point. Yeah. They were the first man-made objects to leave the heliosphere. Uh, Voyager 1 got the first photograph of the whole solar system. It did. It took the family portrait where it was able to look back and see all of the planets and and put it into perspective for us. We're so small. We're and that so was in tiny. 1990. That was in 90. Yeah, that was the one, the last photos it sent back. Not one of the last pieces of data it sent to us. Mm -hmm. It has sent other pieces of data, but, uh, you know, it's still teaching us about the the farthest this reaches, you know, outside the Kuiper belt, into the heliosphere, out of the heliosphere. And at this point, it's in interstellar space. Yep. And on it, just as there was with the Pioneer uh probes because they will eventually leave pioneers 10 and 11 will eventually leave the heliosphere as well uh on voyager though are these beautiful golden records uh they are no sorry they're they're ionized they're golden ionized um aluminum or something like that i can't remember what it is did records did they did <clears throat> they sell a bunch of cds i'm confused <laughs> no they are they are phonographic records with instructions on how to build a phonograph very simple very basic like you get at ikea oh, right yeah yep and when you play them back, you actually hear greetings from the planet Earth spoken in different languages from around the world. You hear the cry of a baby. You hear other elements that are unique to us. And also on there is photos and other information about our location in the solar system and what makes up our type of life, just in case what we encounter is not carbon-based, because there's all sorts of theories that there could be methane-based life or silicon-based life. There could be all sorts of you know, life that's out there. Mm -hmm. uh, and one day... That's awfully trusting. Yeah, well, you know, why Why should an alien species that's so advanced that they would actually be capable of interstellar travel be bent on, you know, interstellar domination and destruction? Maybe not necessarily domination and destruction, but they might, like, come over here, come a little bit closer, and then interpret life on Earth being Trust me, hostile. What, what we're doing with this is wishful thinking. Yeah. The distances between objects in space oh yeah are so incredibly you know vast right that we're probably never going to be visited by another alien life form within the existence of the human race that's my thinking anyhow uh, but you never know technologies may open up new opportunities for us but for now we'll just have to wait for our good little friends well, there's just one ship that's just been in space for a really long time and they're gonna and we make just crashed right in and when following the russians the very first spacecraft to crash into an alien spacecraft <laughs> and it was america this time yeah and it's like i like that in all of the expanse of the universe these two spacecrafts are just <laughs> kabam and right into each other what are the odds and it finally <laughs> lands on earth and the alien life forms come out and they say in their language dear god where is there a bathroom <laughs> <laughs> So been holding it or they, for a really or long time. And then they go, I'm sorry, are you insured? <laughs> <laughs> or they bring it back and they're like, did you lose this? You left this here. Okay, yeah. bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> and with that, folks, ends the, the first part of this exploration of the solar system. Join us next week as we explore Mars. Well, in two in weeks. Two weeks. In, sorry, in two weeks. Next time. Next time. Join us next time as we explore Mars and also some of the more recent missions, which we've alluded to and talked to a little bit, yep. but there was a lot of other really amazing things, things that I remember as a kid, like Galileo and Cassini and all these things that, um, you know, that was my generation's time to see this kind of exploration. We got so many more cool things going. We are going to look into Jupiter. What? We're going to peer through the clouds with microwaves and ultraviolet, mm -hmm. and we're going to look into Jupiter. It's going to be freaking badass it's coming to you next year pretty sweet right yeah shall we get into some feedback i think we shall this week in listener feedback is it planet based <laughs> uh first piece of feedback comes to us from the twitter is it planet based i'm serious it, i no. no i don't want it the person who sent it was based on planet earth all right fair enough that's good enough continue please um Thank from you. at miss michelle diane uh, just heard the Pope is coming to the U.S. I wouldn't be surprised if Deuteronomy had an episode on the history and rules 
of people trips abroad. Oh we do not God. have that on the list. <laughs> oh, um, why, do, why do you guys give Brian these ideas? I don't know. And you know what? We just did like a two-part Christian marathon. We did a three-episode three three marathon yeah. of Christian I'll tell you games. what. We'll do it if we can get the Pope to be on the show. Okay. We can do it if we can also then do a five-parter on Satanism. Deal. Okay. <laughs> Actually, wow. let's just do that instead. <laughs> I don't think you could fill five episodes on Satanism. And the history that of is atheism. awfully condescending, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Sarah, we could do a whole episode on goats, <laughs> just goats alone. Um, yeah, we've got a couple other ones. Uh, one's from Joshua. Hi, Joshua. Uh, just said hi or hey. See, he's already talking to me. I like <laughs> this guy. I just wanted to say thanks for the countless hours of enjoyment I have gotten from your podcast. You're welcome. Oh, you're welcome. I think it would be awesome if you guys and girl. Thank you. Did an episode on cryptology. <gasps> Ooh. Oh my See? God. I think it would make a very interesting topic of conversation. What I think is funny is when he gave us that feedback, he got the auto reply that says, thanks, listen to your feedback on an upcoming episode. And he replied back to the auto reply. <laughs> Josh, you're a great guy. We love it. We, we like you already. <laughs> we'll get on the cryptology episode. I think that, that sounds like sweet. a really awesome idea. I think we got one more. Wasn't there something praising me for having lots of children? I, I thought I remember. Yes, yeah. there was one of those. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it was, re- did we read that on the last? I think we read that on the last one. I think we read it on the last one, yeah. Ah, damn it. Sorry. You'll have to listen Sorry, to the episode. I have to read it and hear it on my own head? God. <laughs> or you just listen to the episode. Um, oh, yeah, we finally got, we got a reply as a comment on our website. Someone registered as a user. Wow. And what? made a comment. That's Crazy. like the first time ever. It's like the third time ever. <laughs> <laughs> Not much better. Once a year. Yay. Yeah. Um, about our spy stuff episode. Oh, that was a fun one. And he goes by the alias Furby Twenty One. <laughs> All right, dude. Whatever also, you, also whatever used, timey. Yeah, also used by the boat. Soviets to assassinate uh, Forty Seven. Furbies yeah. are dangerous. They yeah. really are. That's why we never owned they one. They open up their little beak and there's a little gun inside. Uh, <laughs> right. Cuddly but dangerous. <laughs> Cuddly but dangerous. Forty-seven, sir. Uh, he writes regarding. Just turn it into a bomb. Let's move on, shall we? <laughs> uh, regarding silencers, uh, this is a nerd site, so I'm going to nerd. The sound suppressor is a well-studied device. Some use simple baffles to slow gas pressure relief, and some use counterbalancing sounds to create a white noise effect. Many suppressors just provide a discrete enclosed space for the pressure wave to expend its energy. I was shocked by the short research you put into the episode uh nerds should nerd a bit more we all love gadgets and bond and intrigue let's all be accurate still love the shows and we'll keep listening so he gave us some clarification on how silencer technology worked now if they could only develop one big enough for uranus it's a very noisy planet yeah i'm sure uh and he was referring to the the one that we that i was referring to which is the one about (laughs) it kind of expending itself out. That was the the, the last one was the one right. I, that he called out as a third example. Yeah, there's tons, tons of different types of... There are many different types of silencers that you can put on firearms. So, yeah. Thank you for the feedback. We would certainly appreciate it. Cool. Well, folks, uh, with that, you know what you can do now that the podcast is over? You can go to our website. You know what you can find on our website? Ways to communicate with us and to give us more feedback and to give us money if you're so inclined. Mm-hmm. We could use it. You know, all sorts of things that we need, like a roof. No, we a need ceiling. a ceiling. We need a proper ceiling. We have There's a stuff. roof. We need a ceiling. We have this great ceiling that John put up, one of our longtime listeners, good friend of ours, uh, who is probably cursing at me right now because I know he wanted to be on this episode. Probably crap. I should have him. him on. Get him on for part two. We should get him on for part two. Um, but we, we could probably do this this summer get an actual nice. ceiling in here that'd be great yeah that'd be nice it would be nice but you know what would be even nicer guys if you tell your friends about us spread the word of nerd write an itunes review repost our stuff from facebook uh tweet about us whatever you want to do tell your friends well i said that already well tell them again they probably yeah. weren't listening first repeating. time yes and you know what just just tell your local grocer when you're buying shit. Tell your local grocer, hey, that's some pretty rad kale you got there. He works at Whole Foods. It's a pretty rad kale. You know what I like? You, you, you seem like a, you're an educated guy. You like podcasts? I love podcasts. Yeah. I listen to podcasts about growing kale. Really? 
Do you like ones about history? I think I do. You should listen to Nerds on History. So there you go. It's that simple. So, yes, spread the word. <laughs> spread the word of nerd, folks. And may I make a pitch, if I may? Uh, little something I want to throw in here. In the last episode, I mentioned the Halls Valley Astronomical Group. If you are in the San Jose Bay Area and you'd like to join uh, a wonderful star party, we have all of our new information up online on the brand new, totally sexy, redesigned hallsvalley.org, which I myself played an integral part in redesigning. And by integral, I mean did all the work. Uh, and uh, you can find our star party schedule on there. Come join us while we're on the subject of, you know, space. I might as well shout it out. Cool. You can see Jupiter. It's very nice. And you can go and fanboy out over Eric if you go. Please don't. <laughs> Actually, no. Do. No, squee. Yeah. Squee when you see him. <laughs> <laughs> you can see Jupiter and you can maybe even sneak a crack at Uranus. So, uh, not at our star parties. Up at Lick. Up at Lick, you can definitely sneak a crack at Uranus. Great! So, same nerd time, same nerd channel. (laughs) Yes, nerds, it is that time. So, it isn't that time. So, until we meet again, stay nerdy and tune into our next exciting episode. Same nerd time, same nerd channel, nerdonomy.com. Bye. Ooh, same nerd solar system. So I'm just, now you just got my curiosity peaked. What kind of probes did you find? Well, so I did go onto this one site on RedTube, and then there was this guy who was doing like a and he got what was effectively like, I want to say like a and just right all up in there. Uh, Is that the, the one that was covered with Nutella? Yes, and also yeah. like the person's <laughs> eyes went all bloodshot from yeah, the pain. Yeah. It was pretty. It was pretty dramatic. Yeah, I, I saw that one, and then the <laughs> manages to actually <laughs> through the PVC oh my and God. hits the guy in the side of the head. Yeah, and yeah. leaves the. <laughs> it was really, really gross. Yeah, it was really bloody. I saw one where a guy used it as a didgeridoo. Oh, oh. a didgeridoo. Wow, that is remarkable. It's pretty pretty breathtaking. And musical too.